The following content has been rated for mature audiences only. Viewer discretion is advised. Well, I'm not an expert. I'm not an authority. I'm someone who has been a murderer for almost 20 years. Maybe I should have killed four or 500 people, then I would have felt better. People say Ted Bundy didn't show any emotion. There must be something in that. I showed emotion. You know what people said? See, you really can't get violent and angry. Welcome to The Squonk and the Hag, a podcast about murder, mystery, the supernatural, and even a conspiracy or two. Dun, dun, dun. My name is Mo. And I'm Kraken. Welcome on in, everybody, to another episode of The Squonk and the Hag. And today, it's a motel. It is your motel. It's your motel, 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 motel. What is it again? It's a, it's the Motel Motel. There we go. I knew that. Where motels the motels in the motel. Because she always has motels every week. I, well, every, every other week. But yeah, you know. Oh, you, know yes. you know, yeah. You know, uh, but yes, it is. <laughs> it is a motel. And it's interesting because we're recording this right before I leave for Florida but it will release after Florida. So past Mo is going to say, welcome back from our week off while I was in Florida, even though I haven't left. Yeah, that checks out. So yes, today we are going to be talking about true crime as, as usual with the motel. And this one is actually um, super interesting because one of the sources I found is actually a uh, webinar for forensic investigators that did a case study about this man and about the investigation. So there's a lot of really good information, but I will say it was interesting because I was watching this webinar and they had photos from crime scenes and stuff so they were up on my computer and Chris was not ready to walk in and see a dead body on my screen so that was interesting I mean to be fair I feel like you should have expected this by this point I mean true 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 and I'm just surprised it didn't happen sooner true also true but yeah so uh, I'm really excited because I actually learned quite a bit from the webinar and uh, we'll talk about it later as we go along. But I was just really excited about it. Doesn't take much. It's understandable. Mm -hmm. So anyway, this week we are going to be talking about the eyeball killer. That sounds lovely. So yeah, last last episode we did the bunyip, which was one of the the nicest episodes we did like it's not not too scary not too horrible and then i was like i was already i had this researched everything and i was like oh i don't feel like the bunyip should have came out after the eyeball killer as like no pun intended eye bleach <laughs> or in this case ear bleach a palate cleanser <laughs> there you go <sighs> ah i'm sorry but it is a really good story. It's an interesting one, especially when it comes to the investigation and the forensics. So this week, our story takes us to Texas. And 
in Amarillo, Texas, on August 10th, 1933, a baby boy was born and immediately given up for adoption. Okay, so so far, it's not so bad. Three weeks later, he was adopted by Dell and Fred Albright, and they named him Charles. As he was growing up, Dell told him that his biological mother was a 16-year-old who was forced by her father to give him up, which would not be uncommon. Uh, you know, it, it does happen where people are not ready to be parents and they give their children up for adoption for a chance at a better life. It's It happens and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just, as we go along... I do kind of in the back of my mind wonder how true that was based on some of the stuff that Dell did mm -hmm. and said. But from my knowledge, his mother was just young and gave him up. So far, like, I've, I've just begun to play a game in my head with, with Motels. It's just like, we'll see how normal it starts off and then we'll find the point where we start going down that slippery slope where it just gets worse. And they always do. Mm-hmm. You're welcome. So Dell had been a school teacher, but when they adopted Charles, she transitioned to being a stay-at-home mom. She was still, as that school teacher, very invested in his education and even helped him to skip two grades in elementary school through rigorous study. So it wasn't like she fudged the system, like she just taught him to the point that he was able to skip two grades. Nice. Yeah, she also, Story said, she absolutely doted upon him, but she was also very strict and very protective, sometimes to extremes. I don't like the sound of that, but continue. Yeah, well, this one, it's weird, because I, I tried to look, uh, like I said, I watched that webinar. There's also, there was a reporter who did a really great uh, interview with Charles Albright. Um, I forget the guy's name. It's like Skip something, but I forget it. It was for Texas Monthly. And it was, like I said, it talked about his child and stuff like that. But even there, there was no reason given for this. So for reasons unknown, in his early childhood, his mother would dress him up as though he was a little girl and even gave him a doll to play with. Okay, a little, little different, but not... Yeah, and... It, not too out there. Yeah, and he was very, very small at the time, so he might not have memories of this, but it's just very odd. Mm hmm Now, coming into the, the aspect of being strict, when he was less than a year old, she found him chewing on her tape measure, and to punish him, she locked him alone in a dark room. Uh, okay, that's definitely a form of punishment. Yeah, that that's not the that's not what I would have thought of to do, but okay. Yeah. Also, the whole he was found chewing on her tape measure. Why is that just me and you? Why do you think I have so many tape measures? That's just a day in the life of Mo and Krakow. <laughs> it's true. <sighs> like, how would you sum up Mo and Krakow's relationship? Well, he was found <laughs> chewing on her tape measure, and there are sticky juice prints everywhere. Mm -hmm. So another thing about his mother is she was 
I would say germaphobe. That isn't the word that was used in all the things that I had seen, but she was terrified that he was going to contract polio, which at the time was a very real issue because it was before the vaccine was out, yada, yada. So she would make him bathe and change clothes multiple times a day. And she even took him down to the polio world of world ward. Polio world. The next theme park at Disney. Let's just move on from that one. Uh, The polio ward of the local hospital and would show him the patients locked in iron lungs, telling him you could spend the rest of your life in here. That's not horrifying at all. And then some of her other interesting parenting tactics, when he would refuse to take a nap, she would tie him to the bed. I feel like that's not helping. No, I would have a, I would have a lot of trouble trying to take a nap as a child tied to the bed. Um, and then yeah. he also apparently was a little bit of a scamp as a kid. He loved to escape the backyard to the point that like if he saw neighbors or something walking by over, uh, you know, like he was looking up over the fence, he would ask him to pick him up so he could get out of the backyard and skitter off. Just randomly asking people like, excuse me, can you get me out of here? Yeah. Yeah. And then and I guess some of them did. But her solution to stop him from escaping their yard because he could contract polio was to tie him to the front porch like a dog. Okay, if done with one of those backpack baby leashes, it's not as weird as it sounds. Like if you're on the porch with them and you you don't want them running off of the porch, then, you know, it's a little different. But I have a feeling this was with like just a rope or something. Yeah, this was the 30s. They didn't have backpack leashes for kids. Okay, fair. But still, just just put them in like a little harness with like the spoon in the back so they can't slip through the bars <laughs> of the fence. In addition to being strict and a germaphobe, she also didn't really have traditional boundaries with her son. She would tell him about her husband, his father, uh, his aggressive sexual behaviors in an attempt to stop Charles from growing up the same. And this is when he was a kid. This wasn't like in adulthood when they like kind of set up like, hey, it's cool to talk about this stuff, which is still weird to me, but. Yeah, no, no. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then as he got older, when he was a teenager and started dating, she would go on all of his dates as a chaperone to keep inappropriate things from happening. And then she would report back to the girl's parents. That's even more. No, it's a little awkward. Just just a little bit. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it would stop you from doing stuff you're not supposed to. But at the same time, it's like, how, how do you become your, how do you, how do you become your own person when you're just like constantly hovered over? That would probably stop dates altogether at that point. It's just like, it's just awkward. Yeah. It's like, oh, hi. And this is my mom. We're here to take you to dinner. She's here to make sure that I have an adult when I cross the street. <laughs> Cause got to hold and hold her hand when we cross the street. So I don't get lost. So I'm going to, I know I mentioned that as he was a teen, but I'm going to backtrack a little bit to when he was 11 years old. Uh, His mother introduced him to the world of taxidermy 
through a mail order call. Oh God, I can't speak tonight. A mail order course called the Northwestern School of Taxidermy, taught by Professor J. W. Elwood. Professor J. W. Elwood is going to be an NPC in my D and D game, by the way. I was just about to say, why is that a wood elf? <laughs> he like teaches runes or something. Yeah. Charles, Charles. Oh my. This is what happens when you spend three days straight at work working in a single spreadsheet. Mm -hmm. Charles studied his courses and he excelled. But there was one thing. His mother was incredibly frugal. They, you know, she would shop at Goodwill, even though they had the money to like buy regular things and all that stuff. And she refused to purchase those those beautiful fake eyes they use for taxidermy. Mm-hmm. Um, and he would he would go to the taxidermy shop and see all of these beautiful eyes and he wanted them, but he couldn't get them. And he would do these beautiful taxidermies of small, you know, small birds. And it was mostly birds that I had seen. And they were like beautiful and well done. But instead of those realistic eyes, his mom sewed dark buttons where the eyes would be. And they were almost like these black voids, like just these black circles where their eyes were. I mean, if you do it right, I mean, technically, I think like it, if you're not going for realism, that could just be, you know, their style. But I, I can see where that's just kind of weird. Yeah, well, from what I had seen is they it just felt weird. It felt creepy. Like the, oh, buttons, sure. the buttons that were chosen and how they were attached, I guess they just, it was really, it was real weird. They were probably like massive buttons that were just like half the size of the head. I don't know about that, but they were just, just mismatched. And... No, they were, they were all supposedly dark buttons, but it sounds like it just felt like voids instead of eyes. Fair enough. And this, we'll come back to that. Mm-hmm. So then... At age 13, Charles also had a second thing that he had excelled in. He was a petty thief. Wonderful. Yeah, so age 13, he was also arrested for aggravated assault. But his mom got him out of everything. Anytime he got in trouble, his mom got him out. And then two years later, he graduated high school. Like I said, he had skipped some grades and things like that and enrolled in North Texas University. So in his first year of college, Charles was caught by police with $380 stolen from a cash register, as well as two handguns and a rifle. Because that's what you want to get caught with. That's that's what. okay. And that's what you skip two grades in school for to go to college is to steal stuff yeah so after he was caught he was convicted of theft and receiving stolen property and then sentenced to two years in jail so he pretty much undid the two grades skipped and then uh after serving just six months of his sentence he was released early hey Well, he was still interested in his education, so he enrolled into Arkansas State Teachers College with a major in pre-med studies. But after some break-ins and being caught with stolen items again, he was expelled but not prosecuted. It seems to like stealing things. I'm noticing a pattern. He married his college girlfriend, Betty, 
She was a teacher, but he struggled to hold down a job. I saw that I think the longest job he held in that time period was three months. He instead would forge checks and fake credentials just to get through and make ends meet. Because why work when you can fake it? Back when that was possible and they didn't have the little holographic stickers and all, all you pretty much needed was just a copier and just one of those little paper cutter things. Yeah. And surprisingly, he managed to avoid prosecution for all this, too. Fair enough. So while he was just fluttering around, you know, from one thing to the next, he learned to be a bullfighter. He became an illustrator. And he even worked as a designer at an airplane manufacturer. That, uh, okay. It's a weird set of skills, but all right. Yeah, very much so. Are these the skills that Liam Neeson was talking about in Taken? I'm a bullfighter and an illustrator. And I can even design airplanes. I will design an airplane, fly a bull to you, and then draw what I'm what this bull is going to do to you. So Betty and Charles had a daughter together. But in 1965, they separated before officially divorcing in 1974. Not long after that initial separation in 1965, Charles was caught stealing hundreds of dollars of merchandise from a hardware store. And I... I will note, I mean, this is the 60s. Hundreds of dollars of merchandise is a lot back then. Mm -hmm. So he was sentenced to two years in prison, but again, only served part of the sentence before being released early. And at this point, Charles decided he still wanted a degree. And in 1968, instead of, you know, walking the straight and narrow, earning a degree on his own without going to prison, he stole the right documents he forged the right signatures. He altered his official grades to all A's and B's and gave himself both bachelor's and master's degrees. I wonder if the illustrator and design aspect of what he learned helped in forging documents. Probably. Probably. Because back then, designers worked in print, so you learned about what was necessary to prepare documents for print, what kind of printers did what, how, you know, where to go, what to do. You would learn about the process. Like, I know I went to school, I went to school for a print designer because I was, you know, their web and print were still kind of balanced at the time, whereas now print is much less common. Uh, so... I actually would work with printers because we would get catalogs printed, brochures printed, all kind, you know, postcards printed, things like that. Mm -hmm. And I would actually work with the printers, and I actually got tours of multiple different um, commercial printing facilities uh, as we were like sourcing prices and things like that. So I got to go around and see all the different types of presses that they had. So at the time, the the printing company that we actually worked with the most, they had a typical um, die cut press where they would you have multiple ink colors and then you have a this is how a lot of like newspapers and stuff are printed or like books and things like that, where it's like high quantity and you will cut a die for each color 
and run it through almost like if you've ever watched when people do screen printing or like the the art prints mm-hmm. and stuff like that but it's a machine that has this die on a roller and it just rolls and rolls and rolls and rolls and then it- funny that you mentioned that uh i have a video that you may be interested in because i watched quite literally that yeah Adam Savage's YouTube channel. They yes. he went to the printing company that made the Blade Runner badges. Oh, that's awesome! And they have the all of the original machinery and uh, templates that they used to make the real ones for the movie. And they basically made him his own replica, the exact way they would have made it for the movie. Oh, that's awesome! And they use the roller and the cuts and everything. Mm-hmm. And it's it's really cool to watch the step by step on how they laminate it and everything. Yeah, and those presses are still used today for large quantity things and like if you ever watch those reels of like newspapers like hot off the press that's how it's done but there are also now digital um printing presses which are basically a super gigantic high-end inkjet printer yeah and as much trouble as i have with our printer i can only imagine what a commercial one is like oh yeah these is it's it's like you have to get it just right if everything's not lined up just perfectly, it'll be off by just a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And, like, they'll have, like, these huge tanks of ink in them instead of, like, the little cartridges and stuff. So, um... Yeah, they, like, literally have to just spread the ink on it like a paste. Yeah, but, like, they have... So, like, that printing company had the die-cut press and the, um digital press and then once everything is printed it's just on sheets and sheets and sheets of paper and it has to go through cutting processes and they have different machines where you can just do like straight cuts or you can do a die cut where it's like a special shape and then it has like this it's basically like a giant really sharp cookie cutter that a machine will press down into the paper and like cut those things so like boxes when you buy you know you buy something that's in a box and you have the like little tabs and all that stuff that is printed flat and then die cut and then assembled. So it, it's actually a really fascinating process if you ever can get a tour or find a YouTube video or whatever like that. But um, it sounds both fascinating and stressful all at the same time. <laughs> Welcome to life. But yeah, so back then when it was all physical printing presses and die cut presses and things like that, he would have known those. They also, at that time, so I, w- I have always been a designer who worked in digital files and then the digital files go over to the press and the press converts them into what they need to make all the stuff. But back then they would have had to, um, it, it was crazy. So like you would actually physically lay everything out. You would lay out your typography, your photos, everything on like a table in front of you in like the screen. And then those are what went to the printer and converted and things like that. So he would have had a very hands-on approach and a lot of knowledge about how to print things, which would lead to how to forge things. Yeah, I know. I know, like stuff like, like I said, the badges and all. Like they look nicer when you can just, you know, do it all on one piece of paper. Then you just laminate it or whatever mm-hmm. with what we have now. But like, I like the layers. Of mm-hmm. being handmade, where you have to make like the background, then you glue the picture on it, and then you add the stamps, and mm-hmm. it makes it unique. It does, it does, and that's it's kind of like you know when you compare analog sound to digital sound. Uh, you know, now most 
most artists record in a studio digitally. But if you like get an old, like an old original vinyl from the 60s or 70s, where it was straight from, you know, it was recorded in a much different way. It has mm-hmm. a different feel, a different sound. It's got so that graininess to it. Yeah, and with print, it's very similar. Your print is, it has that graininess to it, that grittiness, that realism to it, that it's hard to recreate fully digitally. So we went on a real rabbit hole there. (laughs) And while we're in the rabbit hole, I can mention that uh, I had to look it up because I was curious about the, uh, in 1965, like hundreds of dollars worth of stuff stolen. Mm -hmm. Um. $100 $100 in 1965 would have been like $970.45. So it's pretty much really close to like $1,000. So that yeah. would be thousands of dollars of merchandise instead of hundreds of dollars. That's nuts. Just a bit of a difference there. Just a tiny little bit. All right. So back. <laughs> yes. Um, he continued to commit petty thefts and smaller crimes, and usually would get probation for his offenses. And then in 1981, while visiting friends, he was accused of sexually assaulting a minor. Now, this got interesting because he still claimed his innocence years later, but he pled guilty, quote-unquote, to avoid a hassle. Is that a soft pretzel? <gasps> Thank you. <laughs> Sorry. Chris just came upstairs with this random soft pretzel. You better leave that in. Okay. But yeah, like, I thought I smelled soft pretzels. That caught me off guard. It caught me off guard. I thought I, I, thought I smelled soft pretzels. <laughs> that was a Bobo move. Just mid-conversation, I just hear, Is that a soft pretzel? Yeah, well, like, I thought I smelled soft pretzels, but I thought, I thought we were out of soft pretzels. And then I just look over, and here comes Chris with a paper towel in his hand like a waiter, and he Mm -hmm. reaches over, and it's a soft pretzel, fresh out of the oven. I want a soft pretzel now, why would you do this? Let's get back into this. Um, okay, yeah, so, he pled guilty, quote-unquote, to avoid a hassle. I don't I, I don't think that's how that works, but okay. It's like, nah, I'll do a little bit of time in prison. I don't want the hassle of, you know, you know, defending myself and getting to go home. If they want to take you to court, just say no. They legally cannot take you to court if you say no. <laughs> this is not legal advice. Don't do this. <laughs> legal advice from Cracko. I mean, I'll do it. I'll just make up stuff and just be like, what topic are we going to talk about today? Ah, uh, yes, theft. It's not stealing if you don't get caught. In 1985, Charles met his second wife, Dixie. She paid all of his bills, supported him. He did get a job this time. He got an early morning newspaper route that brought in a little bit of money. But it also gave him a very easy way to slip out of the house and visit prostitutes without Dixie knowing. Okay. Also, 
When you said he got an early morning newspaper route, all I heard was early morning news. And before you said paper route, I was like, did he become a news anchor on top of being a bullfighter, <laughs> an illustrator, and a plane designer? He literally became anchor man, just sitting there with like a glass of scotch. I don't know why I was expecting early morning newscaster or something like that, but okay. No, um, when I was reading it, I saw early morning newspaper route, and I know... He drove a car, beep, beep. But in my mind, I just imagined him on like a really small bicycle. Why did right? I do the same thing? And I didn't realize it until you said something. <laughs> I'm just picturing this grown man on a small bicycle pulling a little wagon or a little red wagon full of newspapers. Yep. This is how tonight's going. One thousand percent. Wonderful. Let's continue. And we haven't really even gotten into the story yet. Great. We've talked about background so far. And we've talked about printing presses and soft pretzels and yeah. weird taxidermy. Anyway, mm -hmm. on December 13th of 1990, the body of 33-year-old sex worker Mary Pratt was discovered in the Oak Cliff neighborhood in southern Dallas, Texas. A resident of the neighborhood discovered her in the early morning and was so horrified at the state of the body that he rushed inside and grabbed a flower bedsheet to cover her until police could come. That's an interesting reaction. So I will say that this area was, I would say, a rough part of town. There was a lot of drugs, a lot of sex work, a lot of violence. And, you know, it was kind of a rundown area at the time. So I, I don't, I don't know how people would feel about finding a dead body uh, outside of their house, like in a field across the street from their house or something. Honestly, I have no clue how I would react to that. So it's yeah. fair enough. I don't think anybody knows. It's one of those things you don't know until you experience it. And let's hope we don't experience it. Yeah. Like, I have the fortitude to see photos. I know not everybody can look at crime scene photos and things like that. Yeah. I am able to do that, but I don't think I could do it in real life. I don't think I could walk up to a dead body and, you know, look at someone and be like, okay, well, they they were shot here or stabbed there or yada yada like i don't think i could do that you couldn't be the uh the investigator that has to get up close and personal or like the the forensics people or the coroner or any of that yeah yes so mary's body was clad in just a bra and a t-shirt which were both pulled up around her neck to reveal her entire naked body and she was incredibly badly beaten in the chest and face. Then, um, and the reason that they know this is there was bruising, which if she was beaten after dying, the bruising wouldn't show up for right away. And then after beating her, the killer shot her in the head with a forty-four caliber gun. Yeah, no, I can't blame him for getting the sheet. So the first officer on the scene, uh, Officer Arnold, didn't have to wait to identify the victim because he recognized her. He had arrested her previously on multiple charges of prostitution at the Star Motel in Oak Cliff. The area, like I said, had this 
this never-ending cycle of these basically predators would get women hooked on drugs and then to feed their addictions, they would then be trafficked as sex workers. So the hotspot for this was two motels. One is the Avalon Motel and one is the Star Motel. They are kind of a common thread through all of this, but there were these drug dealers, pimps, whatever you want to call them, where they would get women hooked on drugs. And then once they, they needed to feed the, that addiction, they would then be put into sex work to maintain their drug flow. I, I would call them horrible people. Yeah, monsters. Yeah, that's that's another word. Yeah, that's why I said they they were predators. They were predators. They really were. Uh, they would they would find women that they could easily manipulate, easily get hooked on drugs, and then take advantage of them, which was horrible. The homicide investigator, a detective, John Westphalen knew that this case was going to be difficult from the beginning because the body was dumped. And that is one of the hardest types of cases to solve. It adds an extra layer of difficulty because you don't have all of the evidence that is in the place that this person was killed. You you can't see blood spatter or... Uh, you know, find shell casings or, you know, all these different things that you get from a, a, a crime scene when it's a dump victim, that stuff isn't there. Or if you want to simplify it for people like me, it's like reading a book and only reading the last page and then trying to figure out what led up to the last page. Wait, you can read? Read, look at the pictures, same thing, close <laughs> enough. So then to make it even more difficult, they had no witnesses to the killing no witnesses to the body dump, and there was very little physical evidence to help figure out where the murder took place, who did it, etc. They had no murder weapon, no fingerprints, and no clear motive. Uh, so the case was going to be a challenge because it, at the moment, you know, it wasn't like somebody took out a billboard and said, I'm going to kill Mary on December 13th. And they were like, oh, okay, that's probably the person who did it. Uh, you know, they had all of these these drug trafficking predators. Uh, it could have been a personal relation. It could have been a stranger. It could have been like this huge pool of people. You know, they, they had nothing. Nothing was helping them to, because when you do an investigation, you start out big and you start eliminating things and you just eliminate and eliminate and eliminate until you have a focused thing to look at and be like, okay, so here are the facts. This is what's going on. So at this moment, they, they literally had nothing. They were just like, uh, I don't know. On one hand, that sounds very stressful and I wouldn't want to do that. But on the other hand, it does kind of almost sound like fun trying to piece the puzzle together. That's why I liked doing like the catch a killer murder boxer or hunt a killer murder boxes and stuff. Yeah. Because it would let me do that without it actually being a crime. Yeah, without actually having somebody's life on the line. Like it's it's just a story. Uh so Westphalen and his partner Stan McNear attended Mary's autopsy conducted by Dr. Peacock of the Dallas County Medical Examiner's Office. As part of the autopsy, the medical examiner, they first go over the body looking for 
physical markers, you know, like I said, the bruising, um, looking for evidence that might be attached to the body, stuck to the skin, etc. And then they will examine the victim's eyes. It is standard procedure. Yeah, so the eyes can show evidence of intoxication or uh, poison in the the fluids. They can have evidence of physical injury like blunt force trauma or strangulation, suffocation. There are a lot of indicators that they can get from the eyes. So, So just one thing really quick. Out of all the names we've picked up... All out of all the ones that sound like NPCs, Doctor Peacock. <laughs> I think that's the best one. It's literally just a peacock in a lab coat, <laughs> with a little pocket protector, like little glasses. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So when Doctor Peacock lifted Mary's eyelids to examine the eyes, they were missing. I don't think that's supposed to be like that. No, it's not. And she actually had to go to another department at the medical examiner's office to get, there are these, um, they're like little, it's a little contraption that can hold the eyelid open. Um, I guess there is an optical section in the building or whatever, and she actually had to go and borrow them to hold the eyes open so she could examine the cavities. And she said that they were removed with surgical precision. So uh, that webinar I watched was with uh, Judge Brandon Birmingham from Dallas, Texas, and he walked through a ton of the forensics and procedures, and he went over the difficulty of removing a person's eye, especially removing the eye without damage. So the eyelids and the soft tissues had little to no injury. There were a couple little nicks, but like barely anything. And then the killer knew how to remove the eyeball, cut six major muscles holding the eye, and then sever the optical nerve, which is extremely tough to cut. It's basically like cutting a rope. And they did all of this quickly, without anybody seeing them, and without any external trauma to the face. That's even more horrifying, because it's like, this person is really good with a knife. And has the medical knowledge to pull it off. Because, like, even if you just, like, feel the edge of, like, your eyelid and stuff, it's like, that's not very easy to, like, get something around an eye. Yeah, there's... To remove it like that. There, I guess, I don't know what it is, but there is a very specific way that you need to do a procedure like this. And I would imagine like, I don't know why, but stuff with the eyes freaks me out. Like even like mm-hmm. I know there's that woman who can like pop her eyes kind of like out of the sockets, out of her eyelids a little bit and then like pull them back in. Yeah. I can't even watch her. So like to think of like touch like I, I don't know if my vision qualifies for LASIK, but I'm scared to look into it because like it's a laser beam that goes into your eyeball. And you're going to see it happen. Yeah. Because you can't really close your eyes for that one. Yeah. Yeah, correct. So, like, just like... I didn't get the heebie-jeebies, but I'm just like... I, I can't I can't imagine, like... I don't even want to touch somebody's eyeball. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It's weird. 
Yeah, like, I, you know, if I get, like, something in my eye, I will sometimes, like, have to, like, touch it to, like, grab, like, a giant eyelash or something like that, but I don't want to touch someone else's eye. Mm -hmm. That's just... I feel like that's just a, an infection waiting to happen, touching someone else's eyeball. It's like, sorry, I blinded you by touching your eyeball. Probably. Uh, anyway, um, so in addition to this extraordinarily rare evidence, uh, they the gunshot wound was noted. There was no stippling, no gunshot residue. So she was shot from at least three feet away. It could have been more, but it was not an up-close um, shot. It uh, entered like kind of below her left ear, or not not below, behind, behind her left ear, the right side of her head, and then um, went straight into the brain. And one of the interesting things is that the bullet was there, they were able to remove it, and it was made out of aluminum, which for people like me who are not very familiar with these things, is not the normal metal bullets are made of. It's usually copper. Yeah, no, that's that's weird. Yeah, aluminum bullets. I didn't even know that was a thing. Yeah, I don't know. I never even found out if they were purchased or made, but they were aluminum. I would think they would be made. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. So in addition to Dr. Peacock's autopsy, trace evidence analyst Charles Lynch collected hairs and synthetic fibers from the body and just processed them and kept them for future comparison if they found something to compare them to. So if they found a suspect or if they found a location or anything like that. So it was all, you know, like I said, processed and ready to go. And then at this point in the webinars, when Judge Birmingham talked about how important this eye thing was to helping to eliminate suspects. Because while the neighborhood she worked in had tons of shootings, tons of drugs and sex work and, you know, violence and all this stuff, this particular killer also has to have the medical knowledge, tools, and skills to complete this. So this isn't just a drug lord trying to make a statement. Mm -hmm. It's a lot, you know, it, so now they're starting to, like I said, eliminate things. Yeah. Now, now it's the point where we're starting, we have things that we can take away. And in addition to the dump site, as well as the victim, it was telling them that they were looking for someone familiar with the area who had the medical knowledge to perform this act. And this act is known as enucleation, which is the removal of the eye. And no, no. Just two months later, on February 10th, 1991, two teenage boys discover the body of 27-year-old Susan Peterson. Again, the victim was completely naked except for a t-shirt pulled up around her neck. Again, one of the boys covered her with a blanket while they waited for police to arrive. There were no signs of struggle no blood, no footprints, a few tire tracks that turned up nothing. So they had no idea, again, of where the murder took place. But again, it was a dump site. This time was a different officer and a different investigator and even a different medical examiner. So the two cases weren't immediately tied together on the scene. Um, so physical evidence section detective Jim Cron 
collected the hair samples from the scene. Again, everything got processed for future comparison. Susan was, again, a sex worker in the same area with a history of drug abuse. She frequented the Avalon and the Star. And this time, the body was examined by Dallas County's chief medical examiner, Dr. Bernard. Dr. Bernard actually attended the um, initial uh, the uh, autopsy on Mary. So he he was there when they discovered that the eyes were missing. And as he went through and first he identified that she was shot three times. Two were from a distance to her chest and abdomen, but then the shot to her head was at very close range. The aluminum bullet fragment was record uh, an aluminum bullet fragment was recorded recovered from one of the wounds i didn't see which wound but they got another aluminum bullet and more hairs more fibers but notably again her eyes were surgically removed and he said he had never seen this before except one time that's horrifying um yes I was curious about the aluminum bullet because I was like, I don't think I've ever heard of that before. But apparently, like, they, well, at least now, they're almost impossible to find. Like, it doesn't really exist anymore. But supposedly, they were not very good. They were, like, on the cheap end. Like, they're not good for, like, longer ranges. There's, you, you get, like, a lot of velocity loss and stuff like that. So apparently, they're not very good. Well, I guess if you're at close range, it doesn't matter. I guess. Uh, I hate that fact. Uh, So both cases, unfortunately, went cold until March 19th, just again, a couple months later, when a third victim was found. In the early hours of the morning, 46-year-old sex worker Shirley Williams was discovered on the side of the road in like a neighborhood. The other ones were like dumped in fields. She was found in a neighborhood. This time she was completely naked and she was dumped partially in the street, partially in the gutter, which is just heartbreaking. Yeah. This time there was a very interesting piece of evidence. So there was this random speaker cover from a car and on top of it, So I don't know if the speaker cover had been like there for a while or whatever, but laying on top of it was a receipt dated January 29th, 1991, which is just two months, which, well, it's, it's two months before, two months earlier, and it was in good condition. So if a receipt had fallen on the ground and lay there for two months, it would be filthy it would be wrinkled it would probably be torn uh you know lord knows what the ink might be worn off of it or it could have just not even been there because of wind but yeah well this was pure white it was you know not wrinkled like it had just come off the cash register so once again dr peacock conducted the autopsy shirley had suffered two gunshot wounds uh, one just grazed her head and the other entered her left cheek and came to rest at the base of her brain. And once again, it was an aluminum bullet. And this time, 
um, so before the autopsy and everything, the detective on scene, someone there was like, oh God, check her eyes. And they were able to check and her eyes have been surgically removed again. Uh, this time, like I said, it was before the autopsy and Dallas police immediately knew that they were dealing with a serial killer. What do you do if you're the new guy on scene at, at this this crime scene and then you hear a another older officer say, check her eyes? Uh, quit? Find a new career path? Yeah, that, that sounds about right. Mm -hmm. Also, I'm going to make your story a whole lot worse with a with a question or a thought. At least the eyes were removed after they they were dead. Not before. Were they? Could have been worse. But they could have been removed while they were alive. We don't know. Okay, you have a point. We have no idea. I mean, it would be a lot easier to do it post-mortem, but I didn't see... Yeah. I didn't... Like, I'm sure someone knows. I was just assuming that it was after, but... I assumed too, but now I'm like, but was it? I'm thinking on that one too much. Moving on. Yeah, 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 yeah. Thanks, Krako. You're fired from the podcast. That's understandable. So with the lack of evidence, no suspects, police started a canvas of the area. They started interviewing sex workers at the Avalon and the Star. And all three victims were tied to this area. All three victims were tied to both of those hotels. And they spoke with many people. And eyewitness details started coming out from the last time each woman was seen. There were sightings of a man with a red pickup truck with one of those attached campers that's like in the bed. Like it's not like pulled behind it. Like it's just like in the bed and it turns the pickup truck into a camper. Those are kind of cool. Yeah. Um, so it was red pickup. But this man is not. Yes. Yes. So <laughs> this man had one of those. It was uh, red and white. He didn't. He didn't deserve the red truck with the camper in the back. Um, and then uh, more than one woman noted that the driver was a frequent customer of the sex workers in the area, and also had history of getting violent with them. One of these women told a story, and unfortunately, she was under arrest at the time. So no one took stock in this story until things started happening and they went back through some case files and they found her statement. Um, she told a story of a man in a red pickup truck camper. He drove her out to a field and started to get violent. So she got scared and ran and she made it to a house on the property that was being rented to a man named Axton Schindler. Police dug in. Axton Schindler was renting this house from a local man named Charles Albright, who owned the surrounding property. Her story went on to say that the man attacking her followed her to that house, and then both men sexually abused her. Fortunately for her, she was able to escape with her life, but now the police had some names, and they had photos and knowing descriptions and things like that. They also took his picture out during the canvas and stories just started flooding in. Uh, one sex worker recounted times where he had hired her and said things like he quote unquote, hated all the whores and that he was going to quote unquote, 
kill them all. Yeah, he sounds nice. Also, it would be interesting to be in in the detective offices when they start getting close, like they get a name and they get photos and they get like an identifying vehicle or something that like gets them very close to catching them. I bet the hype is real. Oh, I can imagine. I can imagine. So additional eyewitness reports came in. Both Susan Peterson and Shirley Williams were seen with Albright on the nights that they were murdered. Uh, one sex worker also mentioned that the night Shirley disappeared, she was wearing a yellow raincoat. So the sex worker then took police to the area that she used to frequent with Albright. Uh, it was like kind of like out of the way and, you know, like it, like it was outside, like in the brush, like, you know, whatever. And they found a yellow raincoat and a blanket. Oh, no. Yeah. So from here, they were able to arrest Albright. And in the back of the squad car, the officers documented this. He said, and I quote, boy, I really fucked up this time. Boy, I'll say. Yeah. So now they were able to get search warrants and search his vehicles, his home, everything they possibly could find. They, um, they found victim's hairs inside of two vehicles he owned. One was the red pickup truck. The other was another pickup truck. I forget what color it was. Um, additionally, there were hairs from the victims in the vacuum cleaner at his house. And then hairs pulled from the victim's bodies and the crime scenes matched his. Additionally, his hair was found on the yellow raincoat and the blanket found in the Shirley Williams investigation. And one of the interesting things from that webinar, which is like my new obsession right now, is that webinar. Um, they talked about when you find trace evidence, it's not just finding something like a hair or a fiber. It's also where was it found? How how was it stuck to that thing? So, uh, you know, my hair is all over my house. My cat's hair is all over my house. But just because there's a stray hair on the floor, because I apparently shed as much as my cat's, that doesn't mean if there was a dead body in here that I murdered them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But if my hair was stuck under someone's fingernails who was murdered or stuck uh, tightly against their body or like inside their clothing or something like that, that's much more suspicious than it laying on the floor of my house. So, you know, taking into account where these hairs were found, how they were stuck to it, um, different things like that. Uh, you know, also comparing, was it, yanked out or did it fall out you know those different types of things so i had a bit of an intrusive thought here and i'm going to curse you with it why so a lot of times when criminals get caught not all the time there's some sort of dna left behind mm -hmm. skin fingerprints hair whatever so what I'm hearing is the ultimate way to not leave behind any dna evidence is you take a bath in, like, hair removal cream, like, 
the night before and then just wrap yourself in saran wrap so that way there can't be anything. I have a feeling if a completely bald, hairless creature wrapped in saran wrap came at you, they would not get close enough to kill you. Fair. <laughs> I'm just imagining like this weird mummy, like, because like, I just, you know, the sound of saran wrap. I'm just like hearing that while you like kind of like. You forgot about the sound. <laughs> like you got your like hands out and like it would screw up your dexterity. So I don't know what, I don't know what weapon you're using, but it's just like, like rumbling towards you. And like, if you have everything surround, like wrapped in saran wrap, it's just like, I'm here to kill you. So. If I can pull this off, you will be getting a video later that will be basically a brief example of what that would look like and sound like. So oh, that's going on social media. I mean, because I'm thinking of a short horror film clip that I can just put the squeaky saran wrap oh, noises no. over and you'll get the idea. Oh, no. I just realized the first thing that I said sounded like I was going to do it and video it, but no. Well, no. you could like leave your clothes on and keep your hair and just have Bobo wrap you in saran wrap just to see <laughs> just to see how mobile you are. Why do I have a feeling she would enjoy that and she would agree to it? Oh, I know she would. Mm -hmm. So anyway, his home was searched six times, and this included the FBI bringing down a high-tech piece of equipment that could see through walls. They were able to find a hidden weapon cache, but there was one thing that they have never found to this day. The eyes. I don't like that. Neither do I. What did he do with them? No one knows. He won't say? Well, you actually, if you waited one more sentence. Okay. Continue. Throughout all of his interrogations and interviews, he did not confess. He proclaimed innocence. The prosecution then decided to focus on the evidence and the forensics, which included 32 expert witnesses, including Judd Ray from the FBI's National Center for the Analysis of Violent Crime. That's the name. Well, it's, it's kind of like the real life, not the behavioral analysis unit, because that actually exists, but like... You know, basically, if you watch, you know, Criminal Minds and stuff like that, these are like the real people that inspired shows like that. But um, fair enough. One of the things that's very interesting is I talked about that interview he did with the reporter, and he said that there isn't a single woman who would say that he treated them poorly or lifted a finger or anything like that, that he was always a perfect gentleman, which is so funny because there were multiple sex workers that said he was violent and aggressive and would threaten them and things like that. So it does make me kind of wonder, it's like, so you're saying you're innocent and you also said you're a perfect gentleman. So why do I not believe you on either of those things? just the ultimate comedic moment and just the judge is like do you have anything to say for yourself and he's like i am innocent and i would i was always a gentleman and I, no one would ever say i did those things and the judge is like and behind door number one <laughs> bring in the witnesses well albright didn't testify in his trial at all and his alibi fell apart so quickly. His alibi was his wife, Dixie. And he said that if he left the house, she would have known. 
But then other people were like, yeah, I visited the house and we were like hanging out, drinking beers, you know, doing all this stuff. And she never woke up. And like there, uh, there was another time where he like snuck out. I get, I don't, I don't want to say snuck out of the house because uh, he was an adult. But, you know, like he he left the house without her knowing he to go slipped away. Yeah, he slipped away. Like there were multiple stories. And his whole alibi was that she she would have woken up if I had done anything like that. So it fell apart pretty quickly. She just appears on the stand and is just like, yeah, he wasn't, he was never home. He was hardly ever home. He was just, he lived in that red truck. Actually, surprisingly, um, she did take the stand and she's the one who gave the alibi in court that, you know, she didn't wake up and he never could have done that because she would have known he would have walked right by my bedroom. Um, and, you know, she stood by his side through this whole thing, but it fell apart. And his trial only lasted a single week before he was convicted of the murders of Mary Pratt, Susan Peterson, and Shirley Wendell, uh, Shirley Williams on December 13th, 1991. He was sentenced to life in prison without parole, but some doubt his guilt still because there was, you know, it solely solely sat on the forensics. He never confessed. He maintained his innocence. Uh, people pointed fingers at Axton Schindler, who was a truck driver, um, you know, kind of like a, a little bit of an outcast and things like that. But um, Judd Ray from the, uh, what the FBI's National Center for the Analysis of Violent Crime um, has closely monitored VICAP ever since um, Albright was arrested and there have been no murders fitting this distinct pattern and signature since he has been arrested. On one hand, all of the evidence is there, but on the other hand, did he really? Um, I don't uh, I don't know. Um, but in case anybody doesn't know, VICAP is the FBI's violent crime apprehension program. And it documents and analyzes serial violent crime and sexual crimes in the United States. So if a crime is committed, it is put into the database because now everything is digital. And if something has a signature for, you know, a serial killer or something like that, it allows them to, you know, filter out and be like, okay, eyes removed. And, you know, they can see any related cases and stuff like that. Now, as I said, Albright maintained claiming innocence, and he was convinced that he would have the conviction overturned through an appeal. However, he died in August of 2020 while still incarcerated. His appeals did not go through. There is still speculation that he may have been innocent, but we may never know. However, the... The forensics were pretty solid, supposedly. Uh, like I said, it was a um, a case study for forensic investigators. But, you know, without that confession, without really, like, they don't have a photo of him mm -hmm. killing somebody at the crime scene, you know. And they never found the eyes. They never found... So it, it does kind of leave a little bit of a gray area. See, when you said the eye killer and then you went into the whole thing with the taxidermy, I was like, no, nah, they're going to find a bunch of taxidermied animals with human eyes, aren't they? 
<clears throat> no, but they do believe that that does help explain his fascination with eyes. Is because, or why he removed the eyes. Because he had these birds with these voids on their face. He, he was denied the eyes as a child, so he took them as an adult. But that is the story of Charles Albright, a.k.a. the Eyeball Killer. Thanks, that was horrifying. You're welcome. This is what I do for my friends. I tell them stuff like this. I feel bad because I've been talking about this case for like two weeks with Chris. And I'll do it like the other night we were eating spaghetti and meatballs. And I was, I was talking about someone having their eyes surgically removed. Did you pick two of them up and hold? No, I didn't do that. Oh, so you didn't pick them up and hold them in front of your eyes. Okay. No, I didn't do that. But like talking about any murder while eating spaghetti and meatballs is probably a bad idea. Yeah. You're sitting there like, hey, these meatballs kind of like eyes, don't they? Get, get like little black olives or like red pepper flakes or something and put like little irises and pupils on them. Wonderful. Just stick an olive in the middle. I'm the worst. I'm the absolute worst. Thanks. This 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 goes back to uh, having sausage when we talked about uh, was it Mayways? <laughs> yeah. Or do I have the wrong name? I. Nope, it was yeah. Arvin Mayways who, uh, who who ate someone else's sausage. Yeah, and not the kind that they had in their fridge. Nope. And apparently it wasn't good. Yeah. In case anyone was wondering. Just in case you wanted to try it, maybe you don't. Uh, I would say don't ever eat a piece of another human being. Like, that's just a pretty... Yeah, that too. A pretty blanket statement. Yeah. Alright, well, that is all for this week. Thank you guys so very, very much. We love you all, and we will talk to you next week. As always, make sure to check out our website for all of the show notes, sources, and more information at thesquonkandthehag.com. And we would also love and appreciate your support by either leaving a review on iTunes or through small monthly donations using the viewer support link in the description. And if you don't subscribe, make sure to follow us on your favorite podcast network to get notified of new episodes every Thursday. All right, Krakow, you ready? Okay, bye.